0: Thank you Martin. <laughs> um, my object this evening is to prepare you for sleep. <laughs> um, I tried out these ideas, the ideas I hope to explore this evening at an earlier event, um, and I had too much material and I overran. And so I've done some ruthless slashing and burning and cutting, which is a very good discipline for any scholar, and I've got it down to two hours. <laughs> I should perhaps frame that differently the speaker immediately following me is Teresa Numerico at 9.30 tomorrow <laughs> so the question is what can I tell you in 12 hours? <laughs> um, okay, <clears throat> um, automatic computation is widely perceived as a gift of modernism. The uh, huge growth in computers was coincided with and was fueled by developments in electronics. Essentially what I have to say this evening is that the core ideas that are evident in Turing and in modern computing emerge explicitly in the 19th century. Now this may be a bigger or smaller surprise to some, it may not be a surprise at all, Um, but I hope that the assertion, that assertion is not seen to be a presumptuous grab by history to appropriate the triumphs of the 20th century, nor is it a patronizing statement about some vague and muddled past. Um, Included in this core set of ideas I would find, firstly, mechanical process, secondly, algorithm and step the notion of an algorithm and stepwise procedure, computation as systematic method, halting as a criterion of solvability and by extension to decidability, and in the light of the papers earlier, these are terms that are indelibly associated with Turing. The idea of machine intelligence and abstract formalism, specifically in the context of managing complexity. Now those ideas I would say this isn't a backwards projection from my own age into some blank canvas of the past. These ideas that explicitly emerged in the 19th century And what I hope to explore is to demonstrate that while this may not be come as a great surprise. The extent to which this is true in terms of the detail in which these ideas were specifically articulated um, perhaps is not as appreciated as fully as might otherwise be the case. In the light of what we've heard already today from the papers I will also invite you to invite your views on a manuscript that I found a few weeks ago which appears perhaps and that's what I'm inviting a view on To describe a Turing Universal machine, this document is dated possibly August 1860, in the same terms that Turing described it. So this is like, if not the world premiere of that piece of manuscript at least, it's the second time that has been publicly made known, and it's a rather intriguing thing, but that's for later. So automatic computation got its major impetus historically from Charles Babbage born 1871, uh, 1791 to 1871, and this is, uh, I don't probably spend any time on his life, but this is essentially a series of portraits which trace his trajectory as an undergraduate in Cambridge, he was uh, in Cambridge from 1810 to 1813, um, via eminent man of science esteemed by his peers into grumpy old man, um, 1860 the last known portrait of Babbage, via um, a wonderful daguerreotype by uh, Claude. Around 1847, around the time he'd already done his major work on the analytical engine, and had already designed Difference Engine number two. So that's Babbage, and that's as much as I propose to say about him biographically. Babbage's epiphany—that's the Genesis episode—was in 1821, in the fa- captured in a famous vignette where he and Herschel are um, checking mathematical tables prepared by two human computers separately, without collaboration. The idea being, if these tallied, then you had a high degree of confidence that the calculation was correct. And it's well-known, the well-known story that Babbage becomes increasingly dismayed by errors and he clasps his hand to his head and he says, famously, I wish to God these calculations had been executed by steam. Steam being a metaphor for both the infallibility of machinery, um, the, in, the unerring certainty of mechanical agency, as Lardner put it, would ensure error-free tables. And um, it was also a metaphor for production, the metaphor for production, that this would solve the problem of supply of tables. So you could have tables on demand as and when you needed them. So if you saw a new celestial body, you wanted to plot its trajectory, you could actually generate the tables. you didn't have to go through the, the um, greenwich Observatory and you didn't have to prevail upon government provide monies to have these these um, trajectories tabulated. So this was both infallibility machinery, uh, the infallibility of machinery, steam, and also metaphor production, extending the metaphor for industrial production to something mathematical. So 1821 Babbage is now 29 and um, he launches himself into his lifelong quest to to mechanize calculation. By, By June 1822 he had made a small model of a difference engine powered by a falling weight and this it was a machine that embodied uh, mathematical, with the method of differences, and it could calculate polynomials using finite, a method of finite differences. It's known as Difference Engine Zero, compared to Difference One and Two. It's never been found. If anyone knows where it is, uh, it would be miraculous to find. I believe it went to Italy in 1840. and 1840, 1840, and it's never, it was never returned. I've looked for it there, but can't find it. Um, so <clears throat> up to that point, we have Babbage, a mathematician. Um, He's age 30 now. His entire career had been devoted to mathematics. Between 1813 and 1821 he published 13 mathematical papers, entirely mathematical. So here we have a mathematician at the age of 30, confronted with a machine that works automatically and confronted with something that is capable of computational process. So we have somebody, for the first time in history, reflecting upon the implications with a huge predisposition towards mathematical implications of what are the what are the implications of computational process and he wrote five papers between June 1822 and December 1822 in which which capture the earliest reflections of some, somebody who was pretty bright a mathematician earliest reflections on the implications for computational process and so we're going to look at those earliest reflections. Now these reflections have largely been ignored because of the focus and their obsession with people on his engines. And his earliest reflections on computational process have actually been largely ignored. So let's try and remedy that right now. Okay, I mentioned that the um, first model, difference engine zero, had has never been found. Um, but from descriptions, the a piece that he did build, which is one-seventh of difference engine number one. That dates from 1830, 1832. Uh, that's one-seventh of the full-size engine. From its description, Um, it is as useful for our purposes to look at this machine. It had columns of figure wheels, exactly the same, it was automatic, and it operated by method. What this machine does is, you crank the handle, and a number, so that's um, least significant digit, units, tens, hundreds, thousands going up there, so it's a digital number there. Um, uh, uh, second difference, first difference, tabular value. So the value of the function appears there digitally, the digital decimal machine. He did consider other number bases by the way, not just decimal. He considered 2, 3, 4, 10, 12, 16, 20, and 100. And chose decimal for reasons which 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 are known but we don't need to explore now. So, you crank the handle. You set the machine up from a pre-calculated manual table. Um, uh, From the differences, you crank the handle and... For, so value x equals uh, 1 you get the value of the function, x equals 2 you get the value of the function, so each, each cycle of the engine each cycle of the engine produces the next value of the function on the, on, on the, on the last column, so that's effectively what the machine does now, so he's confronted with this and he's now exploring the implications of this to, to um, in the first instance what the implications are for mathematics <coughs> So, I mean, this is the most celebrated icon in the prehistory of computing, and in the course um, of um, what immediately follows, it may become evident why, why that claim, why why I would support that claim. So how do you solve an equation? Um, you equate the expression to zero and solve for the, solve for the independent variable. Um, if there are roots, then um, you can solve the equation. Now, what are the methods of doing this? How did you know the problem was soluble to begin with? And secondly, what was the standard technique of doing this? Now. <clears throat> In um, the traditions of the day, so finding the roots of the equations finding the roots of the equations in the computational model uh, reduces to finding the all zero state. So if the function is reduced to zero, the last column will be zeros or if it goes through zero, uh, you can just detect a sign change. If the increments of X were such that it didn't actually hit zero but it was on either side of it, detect a sign change. So if you can detect a sign change, detect zero, you you've solved things. So here you have a situation where you crank the handle and if you can detect the all zero state you found a root. Of a solution and the machine would halt. Now Babbage talks about the machine halting. He says it would ring a bell automatically to get a supervisor to stop the machine but his later machines have mechanisms for stopping the machine automatically on the detection of the all-zero state. We have halting and we have solvability. Uh, halting is a criterion of solvability. Hmm. So here you know, we have mechanical process in the in the Newman-Turing sense of something unthinking you crank the handle, you do not need to understand the machine, you don't understand the principle on which it's based, you crank a handle, you exert physical energy, and you get what up to that point in time could only be achieved by mental effort. This is mechanical process in the unthinking sense that Newman stimulated, um, that that was the great seminal um, uh, communication between Newman and Turing. So, if there's no solution, the machine never halts. If there are multiple solutions, you keep cranking and the next zero Will determine, and the value of the independent variable is the number of machine cycles that the, that the this mechanical process has gone through. So the echoes of Turing, of, uh, the pre-echoes of Turing, are absolutely unmistakable. We have mechanical process. We have solvability is a criterion of, uh, The solvabilities uh, um, halting is a criterion of solvability. So Babbage saw these machines as a new technology of mathematics, essentially, and he saw that in three separate ways. Firstly, the idea of computation as systematic method. You now had a way. Of cranking this machine and using a computational process to find the roots of an equation, as rivaling, if you like, analytical methods. So you have a computation as a as a, as, a, as a, um, comput- a, a systematic process as a, as a <laughs> computation a systematic method of solution. In one sense, you can then find the value of any series. Whether or not you have an analytic, a general expression for the nth term, so you can put a series on there for which you do not have a a, a general expression for the nth term, and find that term. So now you have a way of finding solutions that you didn't have for which you do not have an analytic solution. Secondly, there was a question of heuristics. Um, If you actually, uh, the machine itself suggested to Babbage uh, new series. In other words, if while it's working and doing these progression additions from first, second difference to the tabular value, you fed back a value from say Um, the tabular value back to the first difference all fed forward. You could then have a mechanical rule for a new series but no general analytic expression for it. So you have now a new series for which there is no general rule but for which you can find any term, another new element that was not evident to analytical. And this is very analogous to Cantor's diagonal argument uh, uh, 50 years, exactly 50 years later where you generate a new series from elements of a prior series um, which um, which, uh, is a new series which is not part of any other series. Um, So the generative rule is no but for which there is no analytic expression. Um, Finally predicted um, the need for a new branch of mathematics which we now call numerical analysis which would optimize expressions for machine computation. The example he uses, he writes an expression down and shows that it would require 35 multiplications in 6 additions. He then manipulates that expression again and um, manipulates that expression to something mathematically identical and shows that you can find the value of that by 5 multiplications in one addition. And he's saying that this will um, uh, give the rise, the need, for a new branch of mathematics that would devote itself to optimizing mathematics for machine computation. And he predicts that without machine computation, science would stultify through the overwhelming encumbrance of numerical detail. He's saying unless you actually unlock the drain, if you like, or the burden of calculation, um, science would uh, stultify. Now there are cultural considerations here. The silent premise of mathematics and philosophy at the time was that example is inferior to generalization, that induction is inferior to deduction, that empirical truths are inferior to analytical truths, and the synthetic is inferior to the a priori. There was a, a, a great elite in status and prestige associated to analytics. The fact that analytical solutions were, in fact, less systematic than computational ones. How, if you can present it with a new problem, how did you find a solution? There was no systematic way of doing this. You manipulate the expression until it, it becomes of a form that you can recognize as belonging to a class for which you do have a solution. So even though computational uh, as, uh, uh, Um, computation is systematic, was in fact more systematic than analytics. It still was actually regarded as inferior. So number crunching was regarded as inferior to to analytic solution. Um, And Babich was fully aware of that. He recognized that these considerations were off-piste. He says these are not in accordance with the the, the tastes of the times. Um, So he was aware that number crunching was regarded as something low-level and was not a real rival for analytics in the culture of the times. He said it's not so much in unison with the taste at which present prevails in this science. So he was very aware that this was entirely new territory, and it was territory for which the um, prevailing traditions of mathematics were actually not entirely tuned. Now, one of the unforeseen effects of the Turing paper, in which he formalized in this in with credentials of mathematical logic of the highest kind, the credentials of the highest kind for mathematical logic is that it gave computer science, it gives computer science a kind of respectability that it wouldn't, intellectual respectability that it wouldn't otherwise have because it's a strong tradition that computing um, grew out of engineers, engineers were the guys around Tommy Kilburn and, and, and Williams and Eckert and Morkley built computers, it wasn't informed by any theory, any logical theory or any mathematical theory and here we have something conferring if you like on computer science a new kind of respectability with all the credentials and rigor of mathematical logic. So this, this actually has some formal um, validity, it's not just a bunch of contingent um, um, circuitry. Now I mentioned that this was one of the uh, most celebrated icons in the prehistory competition. I mentioned that you turn the handle and up to that point in time, you could get results which up to that point in time you could not get except by um, mental activity, by thinking. Now the implications of this were not lost to Babbage or his contemporaries. Harry Wilmot Buxton, a junior colleague of Babbage's, wrote: "The wondrous pulp and fibre of the brain um, had been replaced by brass and iron. He, Babbage, had taught wheelwork to think, and he adds, or at least to do the office of thought. So already there's the, you know, the separation between whether minds are computers or whether my, whether computers are capable of mind-like activity. So these reflections actually." Um, uh, uh, identified and captured distinctions that still both intrigue and perplex us now. Um, Lady Byron, Lady Byron, that's Ada Lovelace's mother, wrote in 1833, last week we saw the thinking machine for such it seems, this very machine, this is the actual machine, last week we saw the thinking machine for such it seems. Um, So, um, they were aware that this was um, significant, that this was something new. This was the first successful attempt to embody mathematical rule in mechanism and the implications of this machine being automatic capable of autonomous behavior cannot be overstated this is the beginning of artificial intelligence. Until you you have autonomy you cannot have uh, machine intelligence. The machine has to be autonomous in some way and that's the first successful example of mathematical rule being embodied in mechanism. and so we can see here the extension of the metaphor of industrial production um, to things that were not material, from the, the extension from thing to thought, from matter to mind, from physical to mental. There's the extension of the industrial metaphor for things which up to that point had been entirely physical. And the, um, uh, the literature of the day reflects this. Um, they talk about, Lardner talks about the mechanical fabrication of tables and uh, Bab- uh, Benjamin Herschel Babbage talks that this is emphatically a machine for manufacturing tables. So the idea of manufacture, manufacturing industrial metaphor associated with now mathematics for the first time um, is something entirely new. Um, right, I mentioned that was one-seventh of the full-size engine so that little demonstration piece assembled in 1832. is one-seventh of this big machine. Um, this has um, 16, uh, di- 16 digit precision, it has six orders of difference so you can calculate and tabulate any sixth order polynomial to 16 decimal places, what the machine can do. It automatically prints and stereotypes results. Um, it would be over 8 feet high. It would weigh an estimated 15 tons. It was never built. Um, half the parts were built. And you can see it's so heavy that it runs on rails. So this would be like the first portable. <laughs> it weighed 15 tons, <coughs> to estimated. Um, now... <coughs> We have a situation here in which, um, for the first time, the idea of computational process influenced the history of development of idea because Babbage used his machine, that, uh, that very machine, to demonstrate his theory of miracles. Um, what he did was a, program, a programmed discontinuity. He would crank the handle without intervention the thing would suddenly do something unexpected. And his argument was that this is not a violation of natural law. This is not a violation of the law, whatever the law was, increment by two, whatever it is. But this is a manifestation of higher law known to to me, the programmer, but not to you, the observer. And by analogy, miracles in nature are not manifestations of a violation of law, but a manifestation of a higher law known to God, but not to us. So he was trying to reconcile something um, that was very difficult at the time. Um, Firstly, uh, lex continui natura. There there was a a legacy from the 18th century, from Kant's days, that the law of continuity in nature. nature, there were no jumps in nature. So the trouble that scientists were having is how do you explain an earthquake? How do you explain, how did the pre-Darwinian evolutionists explain the sudden appearance of a species when there have been millennia of stasis? So these are discontinuities in nature. Now mathematicians knew about singularities. They knew about discontinuous functions, but they'd never seen a machine behave they'd never seen behavior manifesting this. Now because you had a machine that could manifest but through its behavior a discontinuity yet the, 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 that argument about miracles had huge power and huge force because now it wasn't just a mathematical abstraction which may or may not model or be the grammar of the world. This now suddenly became possible that the world manifested discontinuities not because so in a sense he removed the need, as Dennett would say, for the godlike mind in an explanation of what discontinuities in nature were. So we have an example again, right at the beginning. The very first automatic processing machine, we have the idea of computational process interest uh, influencing our perception of um, of change, of, of a development, of developments of ideas. Um Babies never built the engine as we know, and um, but he had a second crack at it in 1847 after he'd finished the analytical engine, which we'll speak about now. He designed Difference Engine 2, this is completed. I was Fortunate to be um, to be responsible for this project. Um, this is um, eight thousand parts. Um, calculate and tabulate any seventh order polyno- polynomial to thirty-one decimal places. Prints to thirty. Prints and stereotypes. Separators over there. Columns of figure wheels, much the same. That's the other standard elevation. Um, that's five tons, eight thousand parts, eleven foot high, uh, eleven foot uh, long, seven foot high. And that's a beautiful, elegant machine, and it works exactly as Babbage intended. <laughs> so. <coughs> we better move on. Um, Okay, if we now look at um, mechanical logic, just to list some of the recognizable functions that are explicit in these designs. Now some of these terms may may or may not be, I'll just recite them without explanation. Um, and we can see that these are circuits, what we would now call circuit and systems functions, that are explicitly embodied in these designs. Firstly, the machine was automatic, that is to say, human intervention in the algorithmic process was unnecessary because it embodied a ruling mechanism. The digital logic through, this, through the discretization of m- motion. These are not inherently digital machines, they are made digital through um, the control systems. Parallel operation, non-destructive addition, carriage of tens, microprogramming, Pipelining, that's the overlapping and simultaneous execution of two separate processes. Preparing preparing something ahead of its need. Pulse shaping, cleaning up degraded edges. Error correction and error detection. These are all built in explicitly in the mechanisms. Binary latching, one-bit storage. Polling, the sequence interrogation of a series of logical states. And input-output, in terms of manual input, um, manual input printed and stereotyped output. So those are just some features that um, up to 18, we're now at 1822, if we go to the first temperature, we're talking about 1830s now. Now the point on dwelling on this mechanical logic stuff is really because it illustrates um, one of Turing's, um, it, 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 the, the point about Turing that this illustrates is captured um, in a wonder, the wonderful rhetoric of Turing's cold porridge speech, which he gave to his um, school uh, when he visited his old school. To, um, and this is captured in Hugh Whitemore's play um, Breaking the Code where uh, Babbage um, talks to his, he um, uses a metaphor that was familiar to him when he was in boarding school which is called porridge and said brains look like cold porridge but that's because they look like cold porridge doesn't mean you say they can't compute because actually it's irrelevant what the physical medium of the implementation is it's irrelevant what the physical medium, it's the logical rules that count and it doesn't matter how these are manifested and so the point about this is we have all the logic but well, initially, we'll go on to look at a more elaborate logic, all the logic that we would now associate with modern digital <coughs> computer. And the terms I've used were not terms Babbage. Babbage did not talk about microprogramming. He <coughs> about pipelining. He didn't talk about these things. I mean, he had a different names, but they are unmistakable in their, in their, in their logical equivalence. Um, so um, the point about this is that this illustrates we have now a mechanical um, equivalent of what we would now associate in, in inevitably with electronics. Right, so if we look at one of the historical ideas we've identified so far, firstly, the idea of the autonomous machine, the idea of mechanical process in the machine cycle, um, the development of mechanical logic, digitization of calculation through discretization of motion, the idea of machine intelligence, and computation of systematic methods. So really we're still only 1830s, we've got that far. And we haven't even got to general-purpose computing yet. So we're talking about a calculator. Difference engines were calculators. They crunch numbers the only way they know how. So the next huge leap in um, uh, um, physical scale and logical complexity was the analytical engine, um, which is the uh, general-purpose computing machine. So if we look at this, um, the same diagram that uh, Martin used earlier. This is the 1840. Thing. This is a staging post. It's not his most sophisticated, but it embodies just about everything um, that he would worked. So he conceived the thing in 1834. By 1838, it solved most of the problems. By 1840, we have a kind of staging post for this machine. If we just go very quickly through this, Morris Wilkes, who, who was never one to uh, bestow gratuitous praise, uh, described this as a uh, vision verging on genius. Um, when uh, Morris was one of the first people to evaluate Babbage as a modern pioneer in 1971 for the bicentenary of Babbage's death and um, he gave a very fine evaluation and he was uniquely placed at the time to do so and he he said "Baby, just uh, this design is a vision version of genius Ok so what is this thing? Firstly it's it's huge, physical scale The diameter of the central wheels there is between five and six feet, right, and those are toothed all the way around and they are toothed wheels 40 deep. This central column is 15 foot high, right um, each of these, this is looking down on the machine, so each of these circles is a column of figure wheels as we saw in the earlier drawing and these are what we would now call registered Babbage, call them variables, so that's the store and that's the mill, the processor and the memory, right? Already we have von Neumann separation of store and mill and he's very explicit about why he did this, I mean, he, didn't, he just didn't present this, he actually tracks, he was very interested in self-consciously following his own design process and logging it, so we know exactly why he did what he did in this particular instance. Um, This is, if you like, a bus. That, if you imagine, is a slotted rack which gears, which links, so there are teeth running all along its length on both sides and it links any one of these registers to any other register. So that's the bus, and it operates in parallel. It can shift 40 digits at the same time, and it communicates between the store and the mall. In here are barrels. There are three of them, one there, one there, and one there, and those are the microprograms and there is buffering, there's ingress and egress axis, there's an ingress axis and an egress axis, so that buffers the information between the, the, the central process and the store, either in or out. So really we're accumulating another collection of things which we would associate with modern architectures. So the central wheels distribute information. That's an internal bus for within the mill, that's an external bus to go to the, to go to the external store. <coughs> We have 17 registers here, but that's just cut off because you can extend these indefinitely. Now Babbage talks about, there are 17 shown here, Uh, Babbage talks about entry-level machines with 100 registers, and he talks about machines with 1,000 registers. Now the entry-level machine at 100 registers would be 18 foot long, 15 foot high. A machine with um, uh, 1,000 registers would be 45 foot long. So, um, sorry, this machine would be 18 foot long, a machine with 100, the entry level would be 45 feet long. So we're talking about the size of a steam locomotive for the entry level machine with 100 registers. So we've got a a separate, yeah, okay. It's operated, uh, it's programmable um, using uh, um, various forms of punch cards, operation cards there which have the instructions, um, uh, number cards which are data cards and variable cards which tell you where and stored it with information. These are huge, these are 26 inches long, these cards, punch cards, they're big pasteboard cards, fan folded on, on an indefinite sequence. This is a, a, a <coughs> drawing by Alan Bromley, show the microprogram work. Alan Bromley was the first to crack these drawings. And um, this shows the microprogram. Now, what Babbage had was um, is what we would now call a word. The word is made up of a series of studs that go up and down this, this barrel, like a barrel. <coughs> and uh, the is not, that's a blank, the study's actually the dowel that sticks out and what happens is this drum, you can see this arrow in the dotted line, moves forward and backwards so the arrow, so the, 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 the rest position is over here in the back position, it moves forward if there's a stud there it activates that rod, if there's no stud it doesn't right, so what happens in the microprogram is this barrel moves forward, activates a bunch of studs, immediately moves back and gets advanced by this, what's called the reducing apparatus, to the next word now what the next instruction is contained both in this word so each word contains where the next instruction is, and a series of conditionals. So how much this advances that barrel to the next word depends on these various sectors. You can see 1, 2, and 4. So it can advance at one position, two positions, four positions, depending on which of these are activated. But there are also conditionals. If this one is activated from an overrun, which is a sign change, it will in- introduce another additional one. So you've got conditional branching here, and it can take account of conditional conditionals from earlier times. If that study is present, if that slug is interposed there, when that comes it will activate rod C. If that slug is not present it won't. So that that slug can be introduced and five instructions later it can then interrogate it. So you have conditionals taking account of earlier right, so, so you have conditional branching and you have multiple conditionals. It can take um, Right, Babbage, of course, didn't construct it. We can hardly say that's a, a model under construction at the time. He's in 71, and those are examples of, of, um, of two kinds of punched cards. Paste boards of indefinite length. Now... <clears throat> right, I'll just read a bunch of... Um, I'll just read to you equivalently the certain system functions that emerge from the analytical engine um, in addition to the ones that we found in the difference engine. Firstly, user level programmability using punch cards, uh, microprogramming at machine level, the separation of store and mill, m- fetch execute, serial operation, separation of store and mill, von Neumann architecture, uh, these are central features of the later von Neumann architecture. Uh, conditional control, those are if-then statements, iterative looping, so you can repeat the same number of instructions, any number pipelining, buffering, we've mentioned, anticipating carriage, carriage of tens is, uh, is executed simultaneously on all digits, um, internal repertoire of automatic operations, so it has an internal repertoire with a microprogram that can do automatic multiplication, automatic division, subtraction, and addition, up to 50-digit registers, his words can have um, 50 to 80 um, uh, um, bits in them, and you can have 80 to 100 words on a single barrel and the three barrels operate at the same time so you've got multiple processing. They operate independently and simultaneously. Um, it has a parallel data bus, it has punch card input uh, of data and instructions, and the outputs are printed, stereotype punch cards or graph plotters. So if the technical stuff doesn't mean anything, the point is what we have here is a hugely evolved, highly sophisticated and very explicit general purpose computational engine. <coughs> right we still don't have computing and for computing we need to get to Ada Lovelace now Babbage met Ada Lovelace in 1833 Lovelace Ada Lovelace um, that's daughter of Lord Byron Um, Lovelace was 17 Babbage was 42 and uh, Lovelace was captured by Babbage in the animation and she went and saw the engine Um, and there's a huge amount of mythology which we perhaps will enter into about Lovelace and what a great contribution is but for Babbage the engines were still bound by mathematics they were still bound by mathematics. These were things that did calculations. They couldn't even do algebra. They could evaluate an algebraic expression but they could not manipulate algebraic expressions according to um, logical arithmetical rules. Um, Now it was Lovelace who made the huge breakthrough and said that number can represent entities other than quantity. Numbers can represent entities other than quantity like notes of music or letters of the alphabet. Now, this was the big breakthrough. Babich, nowhere in his published writings, um, Babich, nowhere in his published writings, uh, writes in this way. And you can conclude that from all his published writings, um, but recently I found a piece of manuscript written two and a half years before he died, where he sits down, he's now going to write the definitive account of the analytical engine, and he starts um, a general description of the analytical engine. The object of this engine is, and it goes one, two, three, they're all mathematical, So, in his mature reflection, Babbage still did not see what general purpose computation was about that. A general purpose computer is something that can manipulate symbols according to rules, and the power of computing comes from the representational content of those symbols. So, if you can get pieces of the world to be represented in the symbols, and then manipulated by a computer, that is where the power of computing, and that is what Lovelace saw. And this is not some kind of vague backwards projection from our own age onto Lovelace. This is Lovelace banging the table, saying it is this that is significant about computing. That the manipulation of symbols according to rule is what computing is, as distinct from, in addition to mathematical. And she saw this in ways that Babbage did not. Her uh, uh, Lovelace has been celebrated and fated for being a maths genius, for being inspiration to Babbage's analytical engine, and also um, being the first programmer. There's absolutely no historical evidence for any of those things. It's just refuted and contradicted by the chronology of the times. Um, so she's falsely separated. She's falsely celebrated. She's celebrated for the wrong things, but what she should be celebrated for, the fourth thing she's known as as the prophet of the computer age and for this she deserves everything she is known for, but not for the reasons that are generally cited. It It was she who saw the fundamental transition from calculation to computing as this thing from computation. Calculation, computation put in one bag. Computing was manipulation of symbols according to rules. Right, I mentioned abstract formalism Um, in one of the things. Now Babbage, uh, that's Um, rather idealized and glamorous thing. Um, i mentioned abstract formalism. So Babbage has drawings, design drawings, we saw an example of one of them. He built machines or designed machines um, but he found that managing complexity was something that was beyond possible. He had, had trains, those are sequences of causal events that he said were too long and too complex to hold in one's mind and he's a mathematician um, uh, immersed in notation and the power of notation and he developed what he called his mechanical notation. He was an ordinary part of this, Um, he said it was his finest invention, it was a universal language, it could describe and specify the circulation of blood in birds, it could describe and specify the movement of of armies in battle. Um, He said it was his greatest invention, he used it extensively to optimize his machines, to eliminate redundancies and various other things and its fate was to enjoy what can be described as spectacular obscurity. In fact there's nobody who has mastered the, 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 the three people who knew about the notation are no longer alive and we are now having to revive all that knowledge um, because we want to use the notation as a hardware description language to simulate the analytical engine, but that's another story. So he develops his mechanical notation. 1826 is his first publication. It comes in three forms. Firstly there's the tabular form, so there are various alphabets and the various superscripts. It tells you Is a motion. So it tells you every part, every part it's connected to, and their relationship to that part, and the nature of motion. Is it circular? Is it linear? Is it continuous? Is it intermittent? Is it pinned, geared, pivoted? What is its relationship to? So that's a form of naming parts. That's the first, that's the tabular form. The second form is timing diagrams. That's the internal orchestration of how the parts in the machine relate to each other. So this is the Um, Timing diagram for difference engine 2, the one that the machine that was completed, and each of these symbols means something. Before we leave this thing, you can see there's a symmetry there, diagonal symmetry between this block and this block. They're identical. And that's an example of pipelining, because these things happen simultaneously. This is being prepared while that's being executed. So you've got this diagonal symmetry, which represents pipelining. But just look at that slightly more closely. That's just a piece of it. So he divides his cycle into 50 parts. 1 to 20, that's 25 another uh, 25 down the bottom. So uh, an arrow with a double head, a double headed arrow means the part that is shown moving returns to its neutral position. If there's a little plus sign there, that little uh, 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 crossover there shows this is the positive or additive direction so that's, uh, um, that is a sector axis which is turning it's got a little semicircle there, it shows its circular motion, it's going in a positive additive direction, it lasts from unit 1 to unit 10 and it returns to its neutral position. That's captured in that single arrow. So every single symbol here um, represents something. Um, F is, um, uh, L is locked and F is free. The backwards F means it's free or it's locked, it's free to move or it's, or it's uh, frozen. Um, this um, uh, activity lasts one single unit. Here we have a unit, an activity that lasts a single unit, but will occur within that period. So you don't know when it's going to occur, but it will occur between unit 2 and unit 10, and so on and so on. Uh, the numbers represent that, means that that uh, element, which is a sector axis, is lifted by 0.34 of an inch. That's what so you can see that it is a complete specification. That's not all, because he has his flow diagram, which is third, third form, and as mathematicians this may be slightly intriguing to you. Complete separation of control... That's from the calculating part. So that's 30 digits enter here. Uh, sorry, that's data and that's control. These are the mechanical trains that drive the printer and then print print out. So um, you can see that this is a hugely sophisticated. That's uh, a uh, close-up version of that. And over here, context of Turing, it says this stops the machine. That is an automatic detection of a particular condition which halts the machine. Right, and that's then the device that that. Uh, that is the drawing of that of which that mechanical flow diagram is uh, part which is the stereotype and printing radius that's the actual device which consists of 4,000 parts. So the physical implementation you have an abstract formalism and you have a drawing that um, uh, mechanized and this is Babbage um, so we're talking about formalization of things. Right, what can we now say? So before the the, the, um, views we had were where were we up to in 1822? And we have listed some uh, ideas, uh, significant ideas that we could. If we now go to the 1840s, historically does up to the so we're gonna update what we've done from difference engines. And right, so firstly we have computational logical control, logic and control. We have a symbolic hardware description language, which is his um, which is his, uh, notation. We have computational systematic methods of solution through stepwise sequence of operations, that is the notion of algorithmic program in a general sense rather than a specific sense of difference engine. the the notion of computers as machines for manipulating symbols according to rules regardless of the representation content of the symbols, which is the huge breakthrough of Lovelace's, and the notion, of course, of machine intelligence. Okay, how close did Babbage come to the conception of a universal Turing machine? We've sort of made hints about all this. Now, um, the terms in which Turing describes his machine are actually physical. He talks about reading, writing. He says we can invent a machine, that. He talks about erasing, writing, reading, moving and so on. So, um, uh, there are various implementations, this is the uh, Mike Davy, beautiful piece done deliberately as a period piece, but the one I want to concentrate is perhaps, it's, not, it's, it's no less serious, but slightly more fun, but that isn't the reason we're doing it. Um, this is the um, uh, Anders Nessen uh, Lego machine which um, was shown briefly earlier, and what I want to do is just show you it working. Now the point about this is, the first machine was showed and the classic thing is the tape moves through the machine. The machine moves the tape, it inspects, it alters or it doesn't and moves to another uh, uh, square. That's the classic Turing representation. The point about this one is the machine that runs on a track. So the tape, if you like, is a physical track and the machine runs along it and if this thing plays, then we'll see... What I want to share with you and invite your views about how far... So we've got a machine that's running on a track. Now this is Babbage, possibly undated manuscript but possibly August 1840. This is Babbage talking about his analytical engine and I invite you to ask whether this is a description of the Universal Turing Machine. The calculating engine is a locomotive that lays down its own railway, picks it up again, lays down the next, picks it up, lays down the third which may or may not be the first and then a fourth which may or may not be the second. Whatever be the law of intervalation, the machine will compel a cycle of operations whose amplitudes are subject to determinate law. Now, what Babbage is describing is an autonomous machine that can move backwards or forwards on a self determining way on a single route <coughs> of indefinite length. It can remove, it can inspect, remove, or replace any element of track strictly according to rule. So it can scan, it can write, and it erase according to determinate law. Intervalation, by the way, is interpolation uh, was originally the interval between ramparts on a fortification, so it just literally means interval, whatever the rules of interval, so you have as the length of the cycle, the amplitudes of the cycle of operation is determined by, by uh, is, is, is compelled by determinate law well this is highly intriguing and highly suggestive um, so I leave that with you okay <clears throat> I don't know how convinced you are that these ideas that ideas that are core ideas in both Turing's work and in modern computing emerged explicitly in the 19th century. But whether or not you subscribe to that or to the extent to which you do or don't, the elephant in the room is, if there is anything in this thesis at all, that the elephant in the room is to what extent was Turing influenced by these. Did Turing know about any of these ideas before 1836 is the critical question. <clears throat> okay, so we know that Turing uh, discussed Babbage with Donald Bailey at Hanslip Park, but this couldn't have been before 1844, which is when... Um, I beg you, 1944. Now, I've flipped a century, thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks for the... I, I assume you've all made an automatic offset there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, 1944, so this couldn't be before 94. We know from descriptions from various Jack Copeland's uh, things, anecdotes and various um, here's reports that there were lively discussions um, at Spleshley Park over lunchtime about um, none of those could have preceded 1939. Now what possible sources did Turing have <coughs> for Babbage's work? Now we know he read the Lovelace sketch. Lovelace published a paper in ni- 1843 <laughs> Which is the most comprehensive contemporary description of the analytical engine based largely on Babbage's work, but puts all her original work in it. And um, uh, uh, Turing wrote in 1850 in his paper on machine of machine machine intelligence that everything we know about Babbage's engine comes from Lovelace's paper. So he acknowledges Lovelace in 1850, but (laughs) 1950. Golly. It's the trouble with historians spanning too big an interval. Um, the other, uh, right, now in this paper it explicitly mentions halting, uh, halting is a criteria of solvability, it explicitly mentions um, the various features we've spoken about, automatic halting is a criteria of solvability, uh, it mentions mechanical process, it mentions all that stuff. Um, referenced in that paper is a, again a, public, a published paper in the public domain 1834 Dionysius Lardner, which is an exhaustive and interminably long And grandiloquent description of Babbage's differentiation number one in which Halting and these things are also specifically mentioned. The third possible source is the technical archive at the Science Museum of Babbage's drawings which um, which consists of 7,000 sheets of manuscripts and drawings. Now uh, it's pretty likely that Turing did not see um, the archive because there's no reason why he wouldn't have mentioned it had he done so. So um, um, I'm going to backtrack and and aside here because there's something that I meant to mention in the context of Lovelace, and that is this, that um, okay. Turing mentions the Lovelace objection in the 1850 paper, and the Lovelace objection is Lovelace says that machines cannot originate anything new; they can only obey instructions. Now, what they were doing was steering clear. They they, they were torn between great enthusiasm for the prospects and potential of these engines, and also. Concerned to give reassurances that machines could not be created, because this would offend religious, religious ideas of the times. So Turing's objection, so Lovelace's objection, Turing uses as a counterpoint to argue for more generous limits on what is achievable by computers. Now, curiously, Lovelace talks about, in a letter, not in, in her published writing, about a calculus of the nervous system. Calculus of the nervous system. She also says that brains are amenable to mathematics and science, as is astronomy right? And so here, but nowhere does the, is the indication that Lovelace saw the connection between computational process and neural process in the way that Turing did, that fusion doesn't exist, possibly because of the, the difficulties of um, religious ideas then. So uh, uh, Lovelace wrote, um, it does not appear to me that cerebral matter need be more unmanageable to mathematicians than sidereal and planetary matters <coughs> and movements if they would but inspect it from the right point of view. So here we have somebody saying that um, science is it, is, there are no limits to the, to the penetrative uh, capabilities of science, even though she didn't see the connection between computational process and the possibility for mental process. So nowhere does Turing actually refer to the archival drawings, he refers only to Lovelace. So on the available evidence, unless we find the article Turing's copy of the article from Lovelace with a notation of him saying I saw this before 1836 we are left with the conclusion that we cannot say that Turing was exposed to these ideas prior to 1836. If he was, fine. If he wasn't, um, what are the implications? And in conclusion let me say what the implications are. That here we have two mathematicians 150 years apart coming to more or less the same conclusions developing what I would argue are an almost identical set of core ideas. And what that seems to indicate to us is that these core ideas embody something fundamental about the nature of computation.